You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Grace Saves All podcast. And this is sort of part two, or the second part of my interview with Tony Goldsby Smith. And if you listen to the first episode, you realize that Tony is a, is a big thinker and um, he really widens the lens out in a helpful way. And Tony, one of the challenges that I faced in my book was I focused a lot on the idea of a Christianity in which we might envision God saving all people. And, and, and boy, that is widening the lens for a lot of folks, just trying to imagine that God might be about the business of saving everyone, and that's a possible way to be Christian. That was a lot for me to try to communicate. But in trying to communicate that, in a way, I sort of, I could have, in a way, narrowed the, the thinking about what salvation is about. And really, it's a, it's a bigger picture than just the salvation of all people, but it's a, it's a larger thing. I, I didn't know how to really address the idea of cosmic redemption and to fit that in with everything else I was trying to do. But so in a way, I'd like to hand the, hand it off to you to let's, let's widen, let's widen the lens and let's talk about, uh, cosmic redemption just has an idea and, so just what is what is that? Why do you like that term? What do you think the limitations of universal salvation are? And why is it that you find the idea of cosmic redemption? I think you also like the word recapitulation, too. Um, so just just start talking about some of that. The way that all of us have ideas, David, is any idea you and I have is fitting into what I like to call a topography an intellectual landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that intellectual landscape, some people might call a worldview or um, uh, a conceptual framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dangerous if you only change your language at the local level um, and you don't change the underlying conceptual framework. Let me give you a, an example of this, which has nothing to do with cosmic redemption. Many, many okay. years ago in our, in our consulting um, life, um, we helped the Australian government with a real problem that they were having with uh, what back then was the large uh, government, federal government department of Indigenous Affairs. They didn't call it that. They called it something else. I forget what. But this, this uh, Indigenous, uh, so billions of dollars was distributed to Australia's First Nations people. That First Nations, de- that department had two, two jobs. One was policy, but the other was service delivery. So, you know, distributing these billions of dollars in remote regional communities for various <laughs> programs. And it was an absolute financial mess, absolute financial mess and of course all the more right-wing parts of 
the community could e find easy examples of wastage of money and so on. Uh, one of the things the government first tried to do was to introduce financial planning, financial rectitude, and financial management systems, you know, computer systems, uh, everyone, all, all these indigenous uh, bureaucrats had to use. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I don't know, it might have been IBM who was doing it. We were working with them. Now, mm -hmm. so, so they had all this sort of training on how to, you know, keep a balance sheet and how right. to fill in an expense account. and But it wasn't working. And we did some what's called ethnographic research to get underneath this and found out, you know what, just the entire landscape upon which Western financial systems sit is not the indigenous mental landscape. Hmm. It, it, for instance, we, we have a general concept called ownership. They don't have a concept of individual ownership. We have a concept called debt. For them, debt is a word that's awful. It carries a sense of like uh, pointing the bone and cursing people. So un there's this very, very deep uh, worldview conceptual framework on which they were sitting, which meant the very, very, you could do all you could to try to change uh, the financial systems. It wouldn't work if you didn't change the landscape. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think there is a landscape onto which the heaven-hell traditional uh, um, gospel sits, which is uh, a landscape that includes uh, the earth being destroyed and us going to heaven. It also is a fairly individualistic landscape where um, with, with murky ideas of what on earth the resurrection might be, but our souls, you know, fly off to a place called heaven. We go to God's home. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and that's great. Uh, the earth's destroyed um, and people can, point to some verses in the Bible that seem to suggest that. And, of course, hell fits into that too because it's sort of like, well, when everything's destroyed, there's kind of like a, a crossroads. You go up to heaven, down to hell. Yeah, it sort of, it sort of fits. And, and, and within that, very uh, within that, there's an individualistic paradigm where my primary, uh, particularly in the 20th century, my primary interest is, is framed – by individualism and individuality. What happens to me? What happens to me? And now, that is not a Christian thing. That's kind of a Western thing. You know, this post-psychological individuality um, as opposed to some more covenantal community view of life. So if you put universal salvation onto that landscape, it sounds like um, every individual gets zipped to heaven and escapes hell. Oh, that's good, you know, and easy way out. So I'm I'm actually, since I believe that entire landscape is wrong, not, perhaps not, wrong might be the right word, immature. Okay. And God wants to create a bigger picture of creation itself, not to be destroyed, but creation. What does it mean for the uncreated God to create? And what's the role of humanity in that created space? These are fairly big uh, primordial issues 
that, yes. that, that, that start to widen the landscape of who God is, what God might be doing, and who we might be. And, and the nice part about this, in a way, is that you can actually do all this without mentioning anything to do with universal salvation. I mean, what happened to me, I didn't come to believe in universal salvation directly but indirectly because I, I just began to have a bigger and bigger topography of what God is doing. And in this bigger topography, hell doesn't fit. Hell, yeah. hell, as, hell as, a, as a place of... Uh, where people go to 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 come to no end. I mean, they, they either they're annihilated or they go on in some kind of torment forever. That that didn't yeah, fit. Exactly. Well, it doesn't doesn't fit. Once you get in a concept that there's a new creation in which, as it says in Habakkuk and I think possibly Isaiah, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, or as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that God will be all and in all, you begin to realize that this creation, this new creation, will be totally suffused with the life of God and the knowledge of God. Now, there's a logical incoherence that starts to develop there. Is it what? Is there some kind of rubbish tip in this new creation, you know, that is called hell, where God isn't all and in all, and the life of God doesn't prevail. Um, so, the the broader landscape uh, is introduced to us by this word cosmic, because I think in the in the in the model of universal salvation, the the interest is the individual. Mm -hmm. What's my destiny? What's your destiny? And and when I gave my talks on the Gospel Conversations website about this, where where I was actually, by the way, um, hadn't worked my ideas out. I was working them out as, so you know, because I think it's a genuinely sort of tough, wicked problem. And I just tried to almost as much as anything else. And there were seven, I think, seven talks. Help us all think it through. You know, I was, I'm just mm -hmm. as interested in, in in the tools to think it through. If you're thinking a problem through, one of the things you can do worst is get the wrong question. And the the the, the more limited topography that, that people have of, of creation and God is the question becomes, well, what's the in, what's the fate or the destiny of persons X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. if, so if you think about it, oh, so we've we've actually got a question about the end of all things that doesn't mention God in it. The agent is the individual. Well, that's going to tell me that this is this scope is too narrow. Mm -hmm. So you immediately say, well, what might be a better question to pursue this? And the question I gave, which is a better question, um, I, I picked straight from what I think is one of the great important passages of the Bible, which is the, 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 the uh, long sermon by Stephen in Acts 7 immediately that led to his martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And that sermon builds through to a climax. Now, the climax is a question, um, and that question infuriated them, and the question is quoted from Isaiah, what house will you build me? Where is the place of my rest? So the question is, you know, what house is God building and what house are we building with him? That's a bigger question, you know, which you could say, well, what's God doing with the cosmos? And, and um, so therefore, 
Now what you start to say is the object of whatever you want to say, salvation or redemption, the object is not just individual human beings whilst the landscape remains unchanged. The object is the whole of the created order. Now that means not just its physics, it doesn't just mean it doesn't just mean the laws of gravity and the wind and and matter. It includes the big social systems. Um, that's a very important point that social systems, if if we say God's interest in this cosmos is not primarily physics but human humanity, you then very quickly get, well, actually he's equally interested in social systems. Now, I just want to say quickly, um, I was enormously helped to make this very real by some of my friends at Regent College, particularly Ian Proven. I don't know whether Ian believes in universal salvation. He probably doesn't, but nonetheless, his view of creation is fantastic and his series in the Old Testament is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And Ian makes the, you know, and, and Ian was the one who, He's just one of the great teachers of the Old Testament of the world. I mean, and, and and my wife, my dear wife, and I have been reading a lot of the Old Testament. Like, you just got to read it. God's interest primarily. What are the sins in the Book of Isaiah in the Minor Prophets? You just read them. It's what are the what are the things that God gets cranky about? Almost never are they individual. They're huge leadership national sins, generally to do with the treatment of the poor. And Mm -hmm. furthermore, he doesn't stop with Israel. In Isaiah, he parades all the nations, one after the other. He's looking at Egypt. He's looking at um, the Hittites. He's looking at all of them. He's looking at Babylon. All the social systems are what he calls to account. So it isn't the fate of individual souls is all, uh, if I were to take a rough guess, like at maximum 5% of the interest of the Old Testament prophets. What their interest is, is the social systems that are being built by kings. Well, that kind of reminds me of the uh, the destruction of Sodom. That Ezekiel has this when he describes the problem of Sodom is that they didn't they didn't care about the poor. They were, you know, it was it was so dysfunctional, and 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 he's he's criticizing Jerusalem for the similar for a similar problem, uh, but then so he lays out this criticism, but then he also says, but Sodom will be restored, uh, and Samaria will be restored, and you will be restored too. And so yes. it's interesting to me how they sort of set out this, you know, they're devastating in their description of, of, of the systemic problem. But then how can, th- then he could turn around and be so hopeful about the ultimate restoration. Uh, and, and I began to see those kinds of patterns uh, well, uh, and, and, and there's something else in that verse you've just created. By the way, we should mention to people, where is that chapter when he talks about Sodom being restored, is it? Yeah, the uh, the restoration of Sodom is in Ezekiel uh, 1653. Good. Yeah. Uh, so we, we just, I think it'd be good for people to read that. I mean, so so just taking that passage you've quoted, David, from Ezekiel 16. Yes, yes, it does. It's a, it's amazing because Sodom is saved. But the but the other point to notice about the the terms used here is that what gets saved is a city, right? The city it, gets 
Yeah. Yeah. Not, not an individual. So, and, and quite how a city gets saved, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, this is a, a sure sign that God is equally as interested in not just the fate of individual souls, but the broader cosmos, which includes the social systems, which includes the natural systems, actually the whole created order we could zone out. That, so the object of, of God's redemptive or saving work is the cosmos, not just individual souls. Now, not to say he's, individual souls don't fit into that, but you should start with the cosmos and work down to the individual souls, not the other way around. Well, I think that's important because sometimes when people think about you know, what's the point of all of this? Well, it's to get my sins forgiven so that I get to go to heaven and not to hell. But then what, what, but then what do we do? Or what, but what are we going to do? Or what's the, where is this all headed still? Correct. Correct. I mean, one of the big problems is that for most people to be, if they're honest about it, heaven sounds pretty boring. And uh, this was most famously, I think, evidenced in uh, Milton's work you know, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, and I can remember studying it, and he was way more, his, his language was way more dynamic when he's talking about Satan than when he was talking about heaven. Heaven got really, he, he was trying to make it interesting, but it, 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 it didn't work. And um, th- this does go back to a, to a, I mean, a way forward is that, is the idea of work. Now, we tend to think, uh that work is a result of the curse. And a lot of people quote Genesis 3 and, you know, you'll toil or whatever it is um, as a result of curse. So therefore they see work, i.e. the exercise of activity. I'm not just talking here about professional work. I'm talking about the whole effort in life, you know, the whole mm-hmm. movement against uh, where energy has to be, uh, energy has to be exercised to reshape situations and, and they could be families or they could be professions or anything. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's the result of sin. Well, no, it's not because um, work as, as in governance preceded Genesis 3. It's in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 1. I mean, Adam had a garden, he had to tend. That's Genesis 2. Uh, the governance, you know. So before sin entered the world, there seemed to be necessarily a need for effort, a need for energy. We should think about this a lot, and therefore we should say, ah, oh, so actually work, effort, and restraint is not just defined as a battle against sin. And therefore, once sin is removed, there's nothing more to do. That's the problem if, if you think that way. But if you mm-hmm. see that the, the kind of creative energy and the mandate for creative energy began in Genesis 1 and 2, well, now you can begin to see um, the new creation is going to be a continued, actually expanded zone for activity and development and amplification. We should really see a continuum between our efforts in this life, whether it be to write music, whether it be to love our neighbour, whether it be to uh, you know re- rewrite legislation in in plain English terms, or whether it be to be a great nurse. We should see these continuing in some form. Into well, the there's a, yeah, I, I like the idea that I was talking to a friend of mine. In that, you know, about the work that he was doing. And it was uh, the 
the work that he is doing is is um, he cleans uh, he takes properties and cleans them or he you know he 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 does a lot of rest, you know restoration of things mm-hmm. and bringing them back to beauty and and those types of things and I was saying that that I'd been thinking about this and I'd been listening to some of your podcasts and that just to think that that any time that we're doing the work of bringing order or restoration or making things beautiful we're participating in the in the larger work of God in the world and we should feel that we're 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 being we're being a part of that that well, God uh, is bringing order and beauty and any time we're bringing order and beauty then we're we're doing something divine in a way correct and 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 this is the way we should think about discipleship you know, what if we what if we redefine discipleship as the restorers and bringers of beauty to the cosmos which is which is broken and but it's also not broken what if we thought that was discipleship we're we're spreaders of beauty uh, we'd be closer to a theological truth if we said that um, than if we said oh it's keeping all these rules we're just like the pharisees uh, of course, a person I, I would like to mention that if people wanted to read one of the great architects of this way of thinking is Dorothy Sayers, her great book, The Mind of the Maker. Um, Dorothy Sayers was early 20th century. Uh, she was a novelist and, 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 and she was a writer. And mm-hmm. she looked at the writing process as her participation in the creative process. It's, a, it's quite a breathtaking, it's a very important book. Um, but uh, yeah, the the... the, the this idea that we are shapers and makers, shape shifters of reality, and the first object of design is ourselves. So now you start to think differently about yourself. You see, uh, my, my criticism of a lot of evangelical Christian and Catholic Christian, it's it's it, the, the idea of growth is defined by sin, so it becomes de-sinning. You growth know, is de-sinning, yeah. Yeah, growth is de-sinning, and my job is to sort of pick all the sins in my life and get rid of them. Um, and it's a bit cynical, but to be honest with you, most uh, sermons that get onto sanctification don't do a whole lot better than that because they don't have a bigger framework. Um, a bigger framework is what if you're a designer and redeemer? So the word redeem and save, they're very theological words. Let's take them out of religion. Let's put the word design in. What if you're a sub-creator of the cosmos? which, you know, very easy to defend that theologically by going to Genesis 1. So you're a sub-creator. What if you're a sub-creator of situations? Now, one of the great books that uh, started the Renaissance uh, in 1427 by Pico, P-I-C-O, uh, Pico della Miranda, Miranda, I think is his full name, but Pico, who wrote that book in his 20s, is called On the Dignity of Man. And he goes into the creation and the creation of man, and he starts to speculate um, and I won't go through his speculations, but they're phenomenal. He, he, he ends up saying, well, what is the greatest object? He, he, sorry, he said, to mankind alone, he gave this property and this capability to create. Only man can intentionally reshape a situation. Well, then the first object of reshaping is my own life. So I view my life as an object of design and reshaping which I work on, not to get rid of sin, but to learn and to grow. And, of course, this starts to fit in with some of the stranger parts of the New Testament that apply growth to Jesus. As you would know, Hebrews several times says Jesus learned. 
you only mm-hmm. learn if you're going to develop. So Jesus is developing. You know, this is not a static God. This is an expanding God. That's an interesting idea. Well, the, one of the things that has uh, been interesting to me is that is that these that there was some pretty big thinking that was going on during the patristic era in the early centuries of the church, and in a way, it was sometimes I think it was during those centuries that people were thinking in a way more philosophically about things and trying to create and trying to have a Christianity that was philosophically coherent and that really that really could talk about the first principles of things and how the and how the beginning how the the ultimate purpose of all things existed from the very beginning and how God was working out something wonderful and that God had known from the beginning what God was doing but that this was an evolving process and that we were in, in a sense coming online or coming on board and learning our place, but that God already knew the whole thing. God already knew where this was all going, and we're just coming along and discovering and then participating in what God is doing. Correct. Can you say, uh, yeah, can you say something about that. Oh, I can. Um, um, uh, although I'd like to strengthen the language, um, God does not act in the created order directly. Mostly, he acts through us. He he has delegated the creation to us, and he's wanting to see what we're going to do with it. Rather than God's created this, you know, it's always rather than thinking, well, look, the created order is really God's space; he can do what he wants, and he's just kind of likes to almost condescend to us, and like like I do with a six year old, you know, who's helping me, you know, change the tire on the car. I, I they they do little things, you know, that just keeps them happy. That's not that's not the picture. He has delegated to us the direction of the cosmos. We are as God in the cosmos. That's how the system is set up. Now that language can sound shocking, but that's what the patristics thought. And I agree with them. It's far more respons- far more responsibility on our shoulders than we recognise. Um, and uh, we can make nuclear bombs, for instance, you know, using our creativity. But but on the patristics and their their engagement with philosophy. By the way, I'm interviewing, as you know, um, David Hart, David Bentley Hart, and I'm interviewing him on Gregory of Nyssa, who's his favourite patristic author, uh, and, right. and mine. And um, and as you know, Gregory was the most thoroughgoing uh, of uh, well, Origin probably was, but Gregory was thoroughgoing universalist, believing all will be saved. And um, for those who don't know, uh, this is this is for those who are investigating uh, the idea that all will be saved and think it's dangerous. You should console yourself for the fact that Gregory of Nyssa was the final architect of the Nicene Creed. He's called the pillar of orthodoxy in the church. Um, it was he... And the, father, and the father of the fathers. And the father of the fathers. Now, it was he and uh, and the Cappadocian fathers who primarily solved the intellectual problems of the Trinity that the Nicene Creed crystallized. And it's he the pillar of orthodoxy who believed in universal salvation. So if anyone wants to think that somebody who believes in universal salvation is a heretic has to say, so you think the the guy who was the architect of the Nicene Creed was a heretic? 
and clearly he was his position was explicit so within the church if somebody's the president of the congress you know the council uh, uh, in which it was it was not nicaea i think it was the constantine council constantinople council i'm not sure but you would not today in most churches most confederations of churches elect as the president the intellectual ar- architect somebody who believed in universal salvation but they did so that suggests that pretty well everybody at least thought it was on the cars now why did Gregory do this? Because Greg, the sort of things I've just been talking about are just a minimalist, my halting attempt, in a way, to follow in Gregory's footsteps. I mean, Gregory went right back to basics. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the cosmos? What is the creation? I've just been talking about the power of the creative process. In his great book, in his great book on the resurrection and the soul, which is only 90 pages long, it's actually, by the way, at, um, Macrina, his sister. That's the, we were, that's where the dialogue that we were talking about earlier. Correct. Yeah. Now, early on in the book, they are having a incredibly philosophical but incredibly modern discussion. In the face of death, by the way, this is very real. This book was written when Macrina was on her deathbed of cancer. And the occasion was their brother, their beloved brother, the second of the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, had just died. And Gregory is grief-stricken. And Gregory's position is death's pretty awful. I know we're, I know we're not meant to think that, but it's pretty awful. That's the context for the discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she has to prove to him the transcendence of the soul, that the soul is not just molecules and cells and matter it's something greater and at the high point of her argument is the human power to create and to put into machinery uh, the intangibles of life and she says in in what is an incredibly modern phrase um, i'll just read out a bit of it to you um uh that if we could ascribe this creative power to matter, we would undoubtedly see machines rising up automatically. Bronze wouldn't need to wait until an artist uh, arrived to take on human form, but would acquire this form immediately by its own nature. So in a brilliant argument, she pushes materialism to its limits and says, well, if, it's, if materialism has got the power to create and, and if creation is merely a, a, an activity of material elements, we should see uh, statues arising, etc. And then, uh, then um, she has this magnificent uh, high point where she says, talks about art. Now, art is her word for creation, creative processes. And uh, an epic sentence, we should put it on a T-shirt, David, um, <laughs> a Christian intellectual society. Art is a kind of steadfast thought operating through matter towards some purpose. Now, that's about 10 words you could think about for a very, very long time. Say that, say that sentence again. Art is a kind of steadfast thought Operating through matter, all artists need material objects. An engineer needs material objects to build the bridge, Mm -hmm. right? But it's operating through matter. Matter is a material 
towards some purpose. So at the heart of creativity is purpose. I want to build a bridge. I want to have a beautiful sculpture. So she is in that sentence talking brilliantly about the participation of human beings in the creative process and the way that we are actually sharing in the spiritual capacities um, of God, not just material, physical properties. That All that to say, um, well, I think those 10 words prove uh, the philosophical acumen of uh, the patristics. And, it's only and, 90 pages, but you've got to read it slowly, David. So w- what is it about the thinking of these, of these patristics? Uh, uh, what do you think are the, the really powerful ideas of the Cappadocian fathers and Macrina, Macrina that really shine through to you in, in, that continue to inspire you in your thinking? They start with creation, not with sin. And they start with the creation as the beginning of all things. And as T.S. Eliot said, in my beginning is my end. And they go, therefore, to the end of all things. Typical reform theology just plays in the middle with some of the building blocks. They go right back to the origin of all things and, therefore, to the purpose of all things. If the sentence I just read to you is about a human being, but he would have applied it to God, And he would have seen art as Genesis 1. The cosmos is God's art. It is deliberate thought. The Trinity thinks. It's a dialogue. It's a discussion. It's a plan. It's not an accident. Well, I've thought about the, uh, there's a building metaphor that Jesus uses that nobody would start to build a tower without knowing if they could finish it. And I've thought about that as kind of a metaphor for creation, that God would not have begun the creation not knowing what God was intending, what we know where this was headed. My father was a pilot, and I learned from my father that pilots don't take off without a destination in mind. They, they have a flight plan. They, they know where they're going, and they know if they're going to have the ability to take their passengers there safely or not before they ever take off. There's a lot of work done before takeoff. And my dad said that the, um, that, the, that, the, that the part of the whole journey that's the most difficult is the takeoff. That's when you're asking the most out of everything. Everything is loaded into the beginning. Uh, and if that's not done correctly, if something, is not, if something is not loaded on the plane correctly, if things aren't done correctly in the beginning, then the end doesn't play out the way that you want it to. Yeah, your father was very, very wise because this idea of the end and the beginning um, and the contemplation of the end and the beginning is something that, you know, Reformation evangelical theology has been very weak on. Uh, The patristics were very strong on. And um, if you get it wrong, as your father said, you really get it wrong. I I did want to, um, however, mention something else uh, to you when we were talking about work and ordering and so on. Okay. Um, And uh, just to draw attention to an interview I did on Gospel Conversations with John Walton, Professor of Old Testament from Wheaton. And John is a a real thought leader in Old Testament theology, particularly putting it into the broader background. Um, Again, I I wouldn't want to claim that John believes in universal salvation. You probably couldn't if you're at Wheaton, but um, that doesn't matter. John's a very broad thinker. And I had a conversation with John a while back where... 
um, he volunteered and uh, to me he said, I think we've overemphasized sin. Hmm. Um, as, and that's as interesting the, because for people that don't know, Wheaton, Wheaton College is associated with, um, well, the Billy Graham Center is at Wheaton College and it's associated with evangelicalism. And so, you know, that, that you would sort of think that's ground zero for defining the problem as sin. Correct. Correct. And, and so it's uh, interesting. Well, now, why did he say that? And by the way, um, if you look on Gospel Conversations, I mean, John John's done quite a bit of, but the most recent contribution was a couple of interviews I did with him where, where we expanded this idea. What he said mm-hmm. was uh, that he's not denying sin, but he said the, the greater archetypes of Genesis and of ancient Near Eastern cosmology was the archetype of order rather than sin. And he had three great um, categories of order, order, non-order, and disorder. Okay. And, and, the, and, and where non-order and disorder come in, uh, it, where non-order is important, well, that would include tsunamis and sickness. You know, many things we battle are not covered by sin. I gave the example in the first interview, even behaviors, you know, how do you, if someone is suffering from uh, bipolar disorder and they therefore misbehave, should I categorize that as sin? Is, it, is that adequate? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't think it is. Um, it doesn't help. Much. I, I, but if I said it's disorder, so we are confronted as sub-creators with disorder and non-order. Yes, there's moral fragmentation. There's a broken world. But there's a whole span of challenges we've got, that some of which are not defined by sin at all. Some of which, if, if for instance, I want to be, because if uh, you know, I've used the word design and creativity. Design is a positive, not a negative thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a great, a great artist like Michelangelo doing the roof of the Sistine Chapel, how many of us think that he sat down and thought, well, I've got to solve this problem? That's how, that's how come that magnificent uh, painting got there. Well, you say, no, that's ridiculous. He wasn't. He was thinking about self-expression. He was thinking about positive things, you know, um, mm-hmm. and he, he might have had to solve some problems along the way, technically. But it, so therefore, hum, the human desire for order is a subset of, because what John does in earlier talks explains that the concept, and, and Ian Proven does the same, of the cosmos is it's God's house. So the phrase you would know is used frequently. I mean, I've just quoted Acts 7. Uh, mm-hmm. Hebrews does the same. The cosmos is God's house. And what John says is he's left us the house, and it's a bit like, you know, when you buy a house, it's not a home. You've got to get in and fix it up and make it your own. He says, well, the Lord want, wants to turn the cosmos from his house to his home, and that's our job. That's an interesting way to put it. Mm. Well, you've you've had some uh, really in the Gospel Conversations uh, podcast. You've had you've interviewed um, a lot of interest uh, interesting people, and uh, you've mentioned that you're getting ready to interview uh, David Bentley Hart. And uh, I, one of the things I appreciate you is you, you don't seem you seem to really enjoy engaging bright bright minds, and um, uh, David, for those of us who have <clears throat> been trying to uh, think more philosophically and coherently about our Christianity, David Bentley Hart has been a seminal voice 
And um, why, why, why did you want to talk to David Bentley Hart? And what, what importance do you think that his work is carrying today? Well, David, of course, is uh, he is quite funny for a start. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> and I suppose all Christians have cheered from the sidelines as he rips apart Richard Dawkins. Um, but what David is doing is, of course, far broader than that. David's agenda is to uh, think the gospel through. In, in in the modern landscape, but bringing a lot of the history of philosophy to it. Uh, and so I think what David is really uh, offering the world is, is very much a modern patristic theology. Um, it's very much articulating God's infinite beauty and grace to the modern generation. And whilst I might be the only one who would say that, I'm I don't know if I am or not, but I think that is a voice that's enormously uh, important in the world today. And his uh, enormous intellectual prowess is, is matched by his eloquence, by the way, because a lot of the challenges of talking about creation and God's infinite beauty and the beginning of all things, a lot of the challenges is find a hard it's it's hard to find words, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's very good at that. So I would say he's a sort of a modern Gregory of Nyssa uh, as one of his great contributions to us. Well, and in, in, I think there's a, something that's interesting too about how your own daughters were experiencing uh, a problem in that they were needing some kind of bigger bigger way of of thinking about spirituality and Christianity that was being given to them. And I think there's a lot of people that are on the move spiritually that are looking for a larger, more coherent framework. And the the sort of the the box that they were given that their Christianity was explained to them in just can't hold the bigger questions that they are that they are asking and that the world is asking as the world becomes more complex and more interrelated. There has to be some solution that, that brings cohesiveness to all of us together in some way. And to me, that's uh, David Bentley Hart and his work is offering us a way forward there. Absolutely, he is. I mean, I began Gospel Conversations as a way to help. It was my eldest daughter um, uh, in particular. I mean, she and her friends were Christians, but I just was very aware of the irony that they go to university, they get complex, sophisticated material being thrown at them, and then... The church's educational model is 20-minute sermons um, that are generally superficial, and it's a terrible mismatch. The The early church distinguished itself by a vast educational system. Um, that's one of the ways they defeated the Roman Empire. They really educated um, themselves about their gospel, and we're, we're not doing that today. And the, and the early church, I, I think it's evident in the epistles, but certainly the patristics were very, very um, informed about the philosophical landscape of the world they were in. And... Um, one of the people, I mean, you talked about some of the great people we've engaged. Um, Edwin Judge is one of the ones who's extremely important. He's a he's like a kind of a Bentley Hart, but um, he's a very. I mean, he began the Macquarie University um, Ancient History Department. He's uh, his his specialty is Greco-Roman thought of the first and second century. Um, an elderly man now in his nineties, but radical thinker and and. Edwin, I mean, the three interviews I did with Edwin, I'd recommend any, anyone to listen to, but Edwin um, 
told me that Christianity was not categorized as a religion for the first three centuries. Religion, that word, was a ritualistic practice, um, <laughs> controlled by priests uh, and separated from life. It does sound like a church service, but nonetheless, that's what it was. Philosophy was about the big questions of life and behavior. When they heard the gospel, they said, that's a philosophy. It, it's a bad philosophy. We don't like it, but it's a philosophy. So they categorized Christianity as philosophy. It was challenging every nook and cranny of life. It wasn't just something you could park and put in some kind of ritualistic boundary over there. It was far more threatening as a result. And um, I think we need to recover that. Well, the, one of the things that's uh, interesting, another thing that's interesting to me about what you're doing is that you, you talked earlier about silos. A and my experience um, is that a lot of Christian education and seminary education happens in silos. So that what happens is you have a church and then the people that in that church are the best, uh, seem to be the best at articulating the views of that church, go to the seminary. And then the seminary is the place that reinforces all those views. And then if the professors uh, run afoul of that, then they, they have to leave the seminary. And so what happens is there's all these different silos that get that get created and arguments back and forth uh, between the, uh, you know, between these silos. I, I, I happen to go to a um, I have a denomination that I'm in, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and we rejected creeds as tests of fellowship. And so what we encourage is all people to do their own thinking, that we, the role of the minister is not to do the thinking for the people, but encourage people to go on their own best journey and to say that we are continuing our, our journey as well as ministers. So we have some freedom there, but it seems like you've got a lot of freedom in, in the position that you're in. You're not, you're, you're, the Gospel Conversations project is not something that's funded by a particular denomination, uh, and you you really have a lot of freedom. You you pretty much can talk to whoever you want to talk to. You can have conversations about, art of, I think, what are some of the, the topics that you have covered in Gospel Conversations? You've covered artificial intelligence. It's really yeah. a wide ranging. It's not just about uh, thoughts about Christian universalism, but you've, you've talked about a lot of what are some of these big topics that you really continue to be interested in? Well, uh, firstly, you're right about the fact that we're independent. Uh, we're a group of friends, you know, network of friends over the years. I should mention Mark Strom who's, uh, and Ron Weinstock, who are part of it. Um, and uh, we're people who are believers, but have been in the business world or the organizational world. And we've got, you began by talking about silos and I, I'd, yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to mention that. I mean, I really believe uh, not just for Christianity, but everywhere that synthetic thinking is the way ahead today. I mean, I could give you tons of examples of it and that's thinking across boundaries. And you're, you're very right to say that the modern church with its education is creating a silo. I mean, everyone else is doing it. They're just doing the same thing. Academics who go on one track don't ever don't ever um, have enough uh, inputs from other thought categories um, and and 
you know, if you ask yourself what's the what's the what is creativity, the best definition of creativity I think comes from Arthur Koestler. It's the juxtaposition of previously unconnected things. It's not the creation of new things. Let's say God does that, we don't. But it's people mm-hmm. who put something, an idea from economics together with an idea from biology. And and every great creative spark comes from this mixture. Um, yeah. Well that's one so, thing I've appreciated about David Bentley Hart too, is that he doesn't he's not just he doesn't just study theology. No, he's a cross functional synthetic thinker, absolutely. Yeah. And so and so we've done that um inadvertently. Uh the um the sort of topics and people um, we've talked uh, about, there's a common core, which is we're wanting to explore the creation theology um, and, and the search for yeah. a bigger, bigger God. Yeah, now, creation, so, yeah, creation theology is a big theme. It's a big theme. Um, th- there's some talks that are somewhat conventional. So Ian Proven and John Walton have given some tremendous seminal talks, now, but they're very important for creation theology because they are on Genesis. Although mm-hmm. um, also um, John John did Deuteronomy. They, they, uh, you know, when when I got Ian to come um, and give uh, give these lectures, they they were not conversations; they were lectures. I said, I want you to talk about the Old Testament in ways that people can think about for about ten years, and he delivered on that. <laughs> um, and now, where both John and Ian are different is they are leading the new kind of biblical interpretation, where they're not looking at the Old Testament in a silo. They're looking at the ancient Near Eastern culture. They're very broad thinkers. They're essentially showing how the Mosaic um, revelation was had both continuity but enormous discontinuity with the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Yeah that, was the, yeah, that was one of the most interesting things in seminary was not to was to realize, oh, that 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 there was a lot of thinking that was going on in the ancient world. And to find yeah. out about all of the thoughts that people were having and then and then you could place the thoughts that the that the Hebrew people were having in conversation with those other big thoughts, and that then becomes that becomes very exciting. Yeah, well, they those two those two two guys do that with the Old Testament. Then Edwin Judge does that with the New Testament. So I give three interviews with Edwin. Um, how did because Edwin views Western civilization as a as a contest between Athens and Jerusalem or Rome and Jerusalem, and we have three talks. The first was how that kind of conflict argument. Uh, changed cosmology from cosmology your view of reality it changed your sociology your view of good society from that to the view of the individual so there's there there are three talks in terms of creation if you go into creation you've got to get into physics i tell people like the resurrection is a miracle of physics not morality it's it is the literal re-molecularization of the world so that the created order can contain the life of God. So, to that end, uh, Ron Weinstock, who's my, uh, you know, co-founder of the, and Ron's a very interesting uh, man. He's a Jew by nature. Um, I had the privilege of introducing him to Jesus a long, long time ago. He told me once, Tony, I've converted to Jesus, not Christianity. And uh, Ron has um, uh, spent. A long time in dialogue with the leading Jewish intellectual in Australia. They, they're great friends. They talk. So if you do yourself a favour and listen to Ron on Zim Zoom, 
which is the phenomenal Jewish philosophy developed out of Exodus, I am who I am, and the burning bush. Have a go okay. at that one. Um, but Ron also is, uh, he, he's got a phenomenal gift for the world. Um, he, he'd, he'd hate all this because he's an introvert and he just wants to you know, run his business and his farms. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I force him out. Ron has a tremendous grasp of quantum mechanics and, the, and relativity and the new physics. Um, uh, that's all a hobby, but you know, Ron read uh, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time when it came out, and, he, and in three days he read it and critiqued it in ways that are now accepted. Um, but he, he brings together quantum mechanics and relativity with uh, resurrection, zimzum, um, and uh, Kantian philosophy, Immanuel Kant. It's, pre- <laughs> it's pretty breathtaking. But uh, his talk on uh, – I think he's the best I've ever heard on science and faith because he, he talks about – the, what he calls the materialist project. I mean, Ron's conversion was epic because he gave his soul to materialism and almost lost his mind. So if you put your eggs in the basket of materialism, he knows where it leads. Anyway, that's another one. Miroslav Volf, um, people would know him, a great Christian intellectual. Um, and uh, Miroslav's talks are on the good life. Miroslav thinks religious studies is at a crisis. You know, it's increasingly irrelevant. Um, you know, Bible, the whole Bible college movement is, you know, got funding problems and getting and becoming less relevant to the world. Um, he thinks the phrase that we ought to we ought to drop religion and talk about the good life. So they were f- fascinating talks. Um, by the way, I think he's picking up Bonhoeffer's phenomenal. Um, inklings in his letters from prison on relig- religionless Christianity. I don't know if you've ever heard of those letters, but they're... Yeah, that is it. I've heard that phrase before. That That's an important way to think. What is the good life? And that's. I think that's something that a lot of people can be interested in and are interested yeah. in. What is the good life? And like I said, I've, I've, I've been thinking proleptically about the, the good life is is about where the good god is taking everything and and then living now in that in that future correct. so that the and, kingdom uh, of god the kingdom of god can be now correct and, we and, can and, live and in the hope of that yeah the phrase the good life does us a lot of work in universal salvation it fits in as to as to what we might be doing now and and you talked about cross fertilized thinking i mean i think in general very very broad terms the most creative inputs into biblical interpretation have come from two fields outside of theology. One's history and one's literature. And they're both, you know, people are invigorating the study of the Bible from those angles. I've mentioned Edwin Judge, for instance. Literature is the other one. Um, We have talks on literature. My daughter, who's a phenomenal teacher, talks on um, Coleridge. um, And um, uh, I give talks on Hopkins. You've done talks on poetry, yeah, on on the website, um, and now um, I should also mention Mark Strom, who's uh, uh, Mark has been was Edwin Judge's, you know, epic student in a way, and Mark has a tr- been a tremendous collaborator. His talks are breathtaking. His talk on the knowledge uh, uh, of the tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as being an a inappropriate 
like almost content. The, can, he don't, we don't agree with original sin. We think the, the 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 problem was we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good is just as devastating to me as the knowledge of evil. It's the good evil dualism that kills me. Not it's life I need. Eh? Mark gives great talks on that. So. <laughs> um, um, and then we interview in terms of faith at work. We've inter- we there's a few interviews with people who have, you know, taken their knowledge of God into leadership in the workplace. So it's yeah. And you did you did a good a series uh, with uh, Robin Perry. Well, we brought Robin out. Him. Yeah, correct. And and I mean Robin, um, Robin's just wonderful because I think Robin gives such a measured balance. He's an erratic, calm man who uh, who. Uh, you know, just doesn't antagonize things. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't polemicize and irritate. I mean, I tend to. I tend to want to challenge people. Um, I'm like that. Mm-hmm. Robin. Robin's not like that. And and so yes, he gave wonderful talks on um, uh, universal salvation. I think. I think they're probably. I mean, I've read his book, but these talks are so compressed and accessible. Um, I also should mention just briefly something else that's important there, relevant to what we're talking about. One of our colleagues is a lady called Lisa Aitken, who's doing a very important PhD on hope, and she's a practicing psychologist. And uh, I think her mentor is Alistair McGrath's uh, wife from Cambridge. But this PhD is almost finished. It's very important uh, on the psychology of hope. Um, oh, interesting. And uh, because she says that all psychologists know that hope seems to be the number one ingredient for mental health, yet secular psychology has no framework to offer hope. And um, she's working with me on that a little bit. Um, uh, and she's taken the whole – her life is very interesting because it's when, – when she heard the holistic gospel from us, you know, the creation, God's everywhere gospel, she could bring her belief in theology to – her clinical practice and so it really it's culminated in a very important phd where she's developing um clinical tools uh, to build hope uh, define and build hope in situations and uh, well one of the things that is just on a very practical level um you know people that are in recovery are are in recovery programs are are often asked to to come up with a god of their understanding well, in the, the God of their, their understanding that, that they intuitive, intuitively come up with is a God who is with them, who will never leave them, and who is greater than all of their troubles. But then they wonder if that God is allowed in Christianity. And so one of the things that I would do is I would tell them, yes, that, 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 that there is a way of thinking about God in, in Christianity that does fill us with hope, the God who is who is not just with us now, but who has always been with us. And uh, anyway, the, the, I think that the work that you're doing, the creative work that you're doing is so interesting and that you've created a really beautiful uh, community and a, a beautiful um, a podcast. And I, I want to encourage everybody that listens to this podcast to go to the Gospel Conversations podcast. And uh, the, well, I know I'm looking forward to the new the the new things that you're going to be doing and the interviews that are coming along. And I'm very thankful for the uh, burning bush experience that you've had in life and that you're the work that you're doing to share that with the rest of us. So God bless you, Tony. Do you, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us as we, as we sign off here? I, I think it's good to finish with hope. Uh, Mark, uh, uh, Strom, I did interviews with Mark, um, 
recently uh, in, on the Gospel Conversations website um, where he, he takes 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, mm-hmm. and, and he says they're not moral categories but categories of knowing. And uh, we should use them as a framework or lens that we take onto the world. Um, and the world needs those things. It needs faith, it needs hope, and it needs love. Now, the greatest of these is love, um, but particularly if we take that word hope, uh, we know that, you know, I'm a big believer that everybody needs hope as in vision, as in possibility, as in a light on the hill. All great leaders do that. Minimalist leaders don't do that. Um, They focus on problems. So the 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 contra- the importance of universal salvation is it's the architecture of hope it it really shines a positive sunshine on all of life including its problems including its challenges so i think the work you're doing david is marvelous uh, because it's um it's gentle it's considered and it's creating a pathway for people to think this through because to be honest with you, all systems are very coercive, and Christianity's—it's just the same, you know. It's enculturated, and you know, you and I know that to actually consider even that hell is—I mean, talk about the worst translated word in the Bible. I mean, it's got to be H E double L. It was a ninth, tenth century word uh, from you know northern European paganism. It's. I'd be completely satisfied if the translator just went back to the five words used, you know, whether it's uh, the Valley of Hinnon and, or Sheol or Hay. I'd, I'd be, that'd be a great starting point if they just yeah. did that. But talk about a metaphorical stretch. Anyway, the word hope is, uh, and the thought of hope is really significant. And I think that's what you're helping um, us do, and I believe I, this is the other thing I wanted to say in closing, because a lot of people wonder about universal salvation and evangelism. We could even have another talk about that someday. Oh well, if everyone's going to get saved, what's the point of evangelism? Mm-hmm. Um, I've got very strong emerging views on that, but one of them is that this gospel of a God of love and a God of hope is is very very persuasive to the modern world. Um, it's not a, not an easy God, but it is a very, very it's a, it's a it's an Act Seventeen Mars Hill message. So thank you for it. Well, this is a wonderful conversation, and and uh, I will take you up on that. We'll have another episode in the future, and we'll talk about uh, about this and how it relates to evangelism. In the meantime, you get to interview David Bentley Hart, and we all get to listen to it. <laughs> okay, thanks, David. <laughs> all right. Well, we're looking forward to it. Talk to you later. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.